Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So in our series, our unapologetic series, where we stand for God's truth as we understand it from Scripture, we come to a very difficult issue this morning, and it's a problem, the problem of evil and suffering. Why did God let that happen, or why did God let this happen? You hear it all the time, maybe from friends at work, associates, or whatever, when something difficult happens in their life or in their family's life, It's interesting, people who don't think much about God most of the week then turn and blame God. Almost six million deaths in this pandemic. Why did God let this happen? In World War II, not just Jews, there were many others, but six million Jews eradicated in the Holocaust. Why did God let that happen? The Spanish flu. In 1918, 50 million deaths worldwide. Why? Why did God let that happen? The tsunami in 2004 in the Indian Ocean and the tidal waves that swept across five nations and took 250,000 lives in a matter of minutes. Why? Why did God let that happen? Mass shootings across the face of this globe In the last eight years, there have been over 2,100 of them. A mass shooting is classified as a shooting of more than four people at one time in one location. And a third of them have happened in the United States. Why did God let that happen? Today, troops from Russia are invading the Ukraine. Countless loss of life. Why? Why, God, why did you let that happen? You know, those that are unbelievers are very critical of God because of evil and suffering in the world. And it's going to take me a few minutes today to work through this, but I think it's important for us to face the harsh criticism that those that are not believers levy against God. Sam Harris is one of those. He said, you know, when someone like myself points out the rather obvious and compelling evidence that God is cruel, God is unjust, because he visits suffering on innocent people of a scope and scale that would embarrass the most ambitious psychopath. We're told that God is mysterious. God works in mysterious ways. He said this in a debate with William Lane Craig at Notre Dame University in 2011. This is a position that is held by non-believers. You see, to blame it all on God. The skeptic's challenge is the popular challenge is what I've just said. You know, why did God let that happen? Or if one's aunt or uncle or son or brother dies, then, you know, why did God take him or her from us? And it causes a crisis of belief, even for believers, because we all face the problem of evil and suffering. The formal challenge is a little uh, more uh, academic than that, but it's important for us to go through it. You see, this is the most significant problem that non-believers raise against the existence of God. 
It's old as ancient Greece. Epicurus was one of the first to raise this in what we call the Epicurean paradox. He was a uh, fourth, uh, third century, fourth and then third century philosopher, of course, in, uh, in Greece that we know as the founder of the Epicureans. Eat, drink, and be merry. But his philosophy really wasn't eat, drink, and be merry. It was to eliminate anything that would impede happiness. And he said this, how can a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and truly benevolent live and exist in a world that is filled with so much evil? And this argument was raised again in the 18th century by David Hume. And he put it this way, sort of like a grid. There were four options. You see, if God is both able and willing to eliminate evil, if he's able and willing both, then where does evil come from? If he is able, but he's not willing, then he must be the most malevolent, the most evil of all beings. If he is unable, but he is willing, then he's impotent. He's not omnipotent, as we have described God to be. And if he's unable and un unwilling, then why even do we call him God? It's the same argument, just extrapolated a little bit. I want to begin this morning with talking about what evil is, first of all. Let's give it the definition. Before we started worship this morning, I read from Genesis 1, and we gave the account of the earliest account of creation, and then the last day of creation with the creation of man. And God looked at everything after he had created it, and he said it was what? Very good. Well, the one definition of evil is this. It's the opposite of good. It's the opposite of what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. And when we come to Genesis 3 and evil is introduced into the world, it is exactly the opposite. It is also, we could define it as sin. Sin, that is rebellion against God and all of its cascading consequences. Evil is anything that includes suffering which diminishes human value and well-being. Evil is anything that causes suffering to humans, creation. I think it's important for us at the beginning to make this note. Evil is not a thing. Now what I mean by that is evil doesn't just exist in, as an entity in itself. Um, you know, we make this mistake sometimes as we talk to non-believers as though there's this great power of evil and this great power of good. There is God who is good and he's eternal and then there is evil and it's the other opposite equal force. There is no such thing as evil that exists as an entity in itself. Evil, in fact, is just the opposite of what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. It is the absence of good. And it's the perversion of it. So it's not a supernatural force. Now, I don't mean to diminish the significance of the presence of evil. By my saying that, it doesn't mean that evil does not occur. It does. But evil is a function of what people do or things that occur in nature. There are different kinds of evil, of course. One is moral evil, and that is what humans do. It's a human violation of norms and laws that causes harm, loss, or suffering. And of course, it can be individual. It can also be corporate. It can be collective. It can be a group of people. It can be a social movement. It can be national or international. And we see that happening even today. There's another kind of evil. And that is natural evil. And this is anything that disrupt, dis disrupts uh, nature and causes harm and suffering. 
by non-human forces. And of course, there we're talking about things like tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and that sort of thing. Drought, famine, disease. And this presents a unique challenge for theists, that is for Christians, for Muslims, for Jews, anybody that holds that God is supernatural. It presents a real challenge from those that are non-believers. The unique challenge is this. You see, most natural evil, most of it, is beyond human control. And so it begs this question. If it's beyond human control, then who does have anything to say about it? Who controls the forces of nature? Well, theists are the only worldview that believe in a supernatural God who controls the forces of nature. Hmm. You know, the pantheists, most of them will dismiss evil as simply an illusion. Deists will say, well, yes, God created the world, but he stepped back and he's not responsible for it. Atheists and agnostics and those that follow a naturalistic worldview will say it's simply a function of nature because all that exists is nature. But you see, it presents a real problem for biblical theists, for Christians, because we say that God created what? Everything. And in Genesis 1, when he created everything, he said it is very good. So if he created everything and it was very good, and we also believe, not like the deists, but we believe that he sustains the universe with providential care. He watches over it every moment of the day. He watched over you as you slept last night. If we believe that he is creator of everything and it, it was created good, and if he sustains everything every moment of the day, this presents a real problem for us to answer with those that say that God is responsible for evil and suffering. And you know what? God takes responsibility for it. He didn't back off last week when we talked about miracles. We believe in miracles. He unashamedly says, I do mighty and powerful things. I do miracles. And you know what? He takes responsibility for all of his creation. In Isaiah 45, 5 through 7, he puts it this way. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This doesn't mean that God is the author of evil when it talks about calamity here. It doesn't mean that he, that he has, has brought evil into the world. That's not what it means. It's, it's a generalization that he uses there to say that he's in control of everything. And when he says that he causes calamity, sometimes he does. It's more of a generalization and a hyperbole. There he's speaking to Israel when he's saying that he is going to visit destruction upon their enemies. But it begs the question, if he is in control of the world and he created everything good, then why doesn't he stop evil? Why doesn't he stop suffering? Well, what are, the, what are the sources of evil? That's another thing that we need to answer. First of all, there are some that would say, I think there are three answers to this. Where does evil come from? Number one, there are those that say that evil is a thing. And I've just said that I don't agree with that. Atheists would say evil exists as a thing in itself because matter is eternal. 
and evil comes out of the natural forces of eternity. Even human and moral evil comes out of that because you see, we're sort of, we're living in a deterministic natural machine and we respond to those natural forces. So evil is a thing, the atheist would say. Theists reject this view because we say that there was a time when there was no evil. God created from nothing and everything was good. And evil is not a, a supernatural power that opposes God. There's a second option. Some would say that God is in fact the direct source of evil. Some panentheists believe that. You know, they're the ones that believe that God is the mind of the universe and the universe is God's body. And that he acts in the universe sometimes in evil ways. Atheists reject that view because they say there is no God. And we as theists reject it because we say that God created everything as good. And he's not the direct source. There's a third option. And this is what we as Christians believe. And that is that evil is a finite thing in, in God's universe that was started by some finite being in, in the universe. And we know where that is. We know where that came from. Evil isn't eternal, but it existed before Adam and Eve because we know that Jesus says that he saw Satan fall from heaven even before the creation of Adam and Eve. Satan has sinned from the very beginning, and Satan introduced sin into the human community by tempting Adam and Eve. And we're told in Romans, the fifth chapter, that sin entered the world through the action of a man and, of course, a woman. So actually the first evil was committed by a finite being that was created by God in a perfect and good way. You see, moral evil entered the universe through a finite being that God created. And natural evil comes from the result of natural forces that have been, of course, uh, fallen. Atheists and most other worldviews would reject this. They would say that no, it's a product simply of natural forces. So what are some of the arguments that are leveled against God and against our Christian understanding of who he is when it comes to evil and suffering? The basic argument goes something like this. If God is perfect, like Epicurus said, omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good, then evil can't exist, number one. Number two, evil exists. Therefore, number three, a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and good cannot therefore exist. This is the key argument that is often used by nonbelievers against the whole Christian belief system. And there are two variations of the argument. One is leveled against God as creator and the other as sustainer. God as creator, then if God created everything why, and, and there's evil in the world, then why did he create it so that e evil could exist? He could have prevented it. If he is sustainer then, why hasn't he eliminated it since then? That's the rational argument. There are some that argue from evidence. That is, they look at the world and they see all the evil that is out there. So when I cite the tsunami this morning and the pandemic and the, and the Spanish flu, they look at evidences then of suffering in the world. And one of the foremost proponents of this argument is William Rowe, a philosophy professor at Purdue University. And Rowe's argument goes something like this. 
He's responding to the Christian's argument that, you know, sometimes God lets evil happen because a greater good can come out of it. And he responds this way. He says, you see, there's intense suffering that exists. If, if, if intense suffering exists with an omnipotent, omniscient being, it should be prevented. And he can do this without obstructing a greater good and without causing a greater evil. A holy good God, he said, would prevent such suffering. But widespread suffering exists, and therefore such an omniscient, omnipotent, and benevolent God cannot exist. And he uses an example that's well known in apologetics called Rose Fawn. He said, there is unimaginable suffering that goes on in this world that we know nothing about. So, for example, there is a deer in a forest, and the lightning strikes the forest, and it's set afire, and the, the fawn is trapped in, a, in a, a, a corner of the forest and is burned horribly and dies a very painful death. Nobody is there. No human observes it. There's no greater good that can come out of it. It is simply senseless pain and suffering. How can God allow that to happen? How can God allow this kind of suffering to happen? How can God allow a tsunami in the Indian Ocean sweep across five nations and innocent babies be killed, you see? And this would be his argument against the existence of a benevolent God. Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist whom I've quoted several times, puts it this way. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, he says, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of species are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect that if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, there is nothing but pitiless indifference. Wow, what a bleak picture that the unbeliever brings to the problem. Are evil and suffering preventable? Well, critics of God would say that they are. They give three options. They say, he, first of all, he could have chosen not to create the world. Secondly, they say that he have, could have created a, a world that was not free, a non-free world. Or thirdly, he could have created a free world where sin was not a possibility. But there are problems with those arguments. You see, God is good, and his intention is good. And his intention in creating the universe was to create a good universe. And for him not to have created would not have fulfilled his good impulse. You see, I'm one of those that believes that that nothing, no creation, is not better than something. I think it is a good thing that we are here. I am glad that he created us. I think that argument holds no water. There's a second one. God could have created a non-free world. A non-free world, friends, is not morally better than a free world with sin. A non-free world we know would be what? It would be a morally dictatorial world. There would be no opportunity for such things as love and devotion 
and commitment and faithfulness because you see all of those things have to do with our choosing to invest ourselves relationally with others and without that we would have a robotic oh yes maybe morally right world but it would be one of dictatorial proportions and there is of course the third possibility that they raise and that is to create a free world where there's no possibility of sin but that's impossible because once people have free will they must be free to choose and if they are free to choose they must be free in fact to do good or not to do good and they will choose to sin you see if God made it impossible to sin and yet we had free choice that's a contradiction there would be no free choice it would be forced freedom and forced freedom is a logical contradiction a world with a possibility of evil also provides the possibility of great good. So I reject all three of those options. You see, the main theistic defense and our main defense as Christians is simply this. God created us with what? A conscience and a free will. As we look at God as creator, we would say this. We say God is perfect being and he created perfect creatures and he gave them free choice. He gave Adam and Eve free choice. He gives you free choice. He gives me free choice. And some, no, all of those creatures, when they choose, eventually they choose to do something wrong that is evil. And so it is not God who caused evil. It is finite beings in his universe that cause evil, and we are they. The implications of this is that evil did in, did in fact arise from something good. It didn't come directly from God. God created a universe in which we have free choice, and he created in that then the possibility because of that choice, the possibility of evil. But it is the finite beings, it is you and I that need to take responsibility for the fact, the actuality of evil. We are the ones that are responsible for it. When we look at God as sustainer, the question is, why does God not eliminate evil today? You see, I think the argument for that is God cannot do that which is impossible. Oh, but people say nothing is impossible for God. Well, yes, there are things that are impossible for God. It is there's nothing that God cannot do that is consistent with his character. But there's some logical contradictions. You can't have a square circle. You can't have a round triangle. And you see, there are some things that are just literally impossible. And one of those is, it is impossible to destroy evil without destroying free will. Free will is necessary for a moral universe. And if God were to destroy evil, he would destroy free will and the moral basis of the universe. You know, God does not coerce us to do anything against our will. Otherwise, there would be no free choice. And if there's no free choice, friends, there is no such thing as moral goodness in the universe. What do I mean by that? There's a difference between innocence and goodness. Innocence is doing nothing wrong when we're not tempted. Innocence is doing nothing wrong when we have no choice. But goodness is when we're faced with the temptation to do something wrong. And we, did, we choose to do that which is right. So a morally good universe requires the choice to do that which is good. Though God 
does not choose to eliminate evil today. We know this. We are promised this. Someday he will thoroughly and totally defeat it in the end. So why does God permit evil and suffering? Well, one has to do with God's omniscience. God has a good purpose for everything, and he can bring good out of everything, even evil. We're finite beings, and we do not know all of God's purposes. Romans 8, you see, he can bring good out of everything, but we don't know all of those things. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. It doesn't mean those things don't exist, good things don't exist. And it doesn't mean that God isn't good. He's omniscient, and he knows more than we do. A second thing that we need to consider is that we do know some good purposes for evil. There are some good purposes that can come out of evil, not that God causes them. Even our finite minds can grasp this. You feel a pain in your side or your back, or you feel a tingling in your arms, fingers. Those are warning signs. They are painful. That is a degree of suffering, but it has some good because those are symptoms that point us to do what? To go to the doctor and find out what is wrong before we have a heart attack or before we have some other kind of ailment. So there are some good purposes out of some suffering. Some suffering, some evil can be a a byproduct of a good purpose. For, For some animals to survive, they must eat. And for them to eat, some other animals must die. Water serves a good purpose. We must have it every day in order to live, but also people drown in water. God can bring good results out of evil situations. Good can be recovered out of evil byproducts. In a sawmill where they they cut wood and there's sawdust on the floor, that sawdust can be recovered and it can be used to make paper. So there can be good results out of things that are imperfect. The greatest miracle that was ever performed after creation was a result of great suffering and great pain. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And out of that came the greatest miracle of the resurrection. There can be good that comes out of suffering. And when it comes to natural evil... The problem is that most natural evil does not result from human action. God seems to be responsible for it. Natural evil causes innocent suffering and death. So they, non-believers, accuse God of being responsible for this innocent suffering. I would say this. Some natural evil does come as a result of moral evil. Some natural evil comes out of human action. So, destroying the environment. Some of the cascading effects of natural course of things are a result of human action. There's another factor. For any competent human being that is adult, a person that's come to an age of awareness of right and wrong, there is not a single person on the face of this globe that is absolutely innocent. We are all sinners. Now, I'm not saying that if something happens to you that is bad, it's it's a direct result of that sin that you've done. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But not a single one of us is absolutely innocent. Each one of us is guilty to begin with. And all natural evil is a result of moral evil. With the fall of Adam and Eve, the creation also fell. 
Genesis 3 tells us that, and Romans 8 tells us that. And all of nature suffers as a result, and it groans and it awaits the day of redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the curse someday, we are told in Revelation 21 and 22, the curse someday will be removed. But natural evil is a result of the fall. You know, if you've ever come to a funeral here, and Brother Clyde has had anything to say by word of testimony or preaching or uh, eulogy, he usually says something like this. He says, you know, not a single one of us really deserves to live or has a right to live. Now, he's not saying that God's not good. He's not saying that God didn't give us life. But what what he's saying is that God gave you your life. We wouldn't be alive without him. You see, he's not morally obliged to keep us alive. Hmm. He's not morally obliged to keep us alive forever. In fact, I would go on and say this. He's not morally obliged to prevent any kind of suffering or death. He is the author of life. Life and health are gifts that come from God. Not a single one of us has an inherent right to live forever on this earth. I know the, Const- I know the uh, declaration says that, you know, uh, that he, we have been endowed by our creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you know what? It doesn't say unlimited life, does it? It doesn't say unlimited liberty. No, your, liberty are, your, lim- your liberties are proscribed. They are bounded by other people's liberties. And happiness isn't just, oh, just for me to be happy. It's for us together as a corporate body and a nation then to endeavor to do that which is good and to make us content. There are boundaries on those things. There is a boundary on life itself. Life and health are God's to give as he chooses. Deuteronomy 32 puts it this way. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Job put it this way. Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I will return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, sometimes we're rather presumptuous about life. We just assume that we have a right to live, and to live forever, And then when we die, it is unfair. Nobody has a right to live on earth forever, but some have the promise of eternal life. There's some reasons for suffering, and let me close with these. It may be necessary to attain a a greater good. This is what Roe argues against. You know, painful experiences help us to minister to people in similar situations. Coming to God And coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior often comes after a person has come through a very painful experience of suffering and it points them to God. It may be that it's an evil byproduct of something that is good in the world. Sex is good. It is good for procreation. But rape is an evil byproduct of that. Food is necessary for life. Food poisoning is not good for us. Disaster sometimes provides opportunity for valuable responses. Today, I know that there are 
many in the Ukraine. And there are many of us that are praying for them in the Ukraine. There are Christians that are, are praying today on Sunday and every day of the week. And they're asking the question, why is this happening to us? And we don't have all of the answers, friends. That's one of the problems. But we do know this. We do know that it will give the church in the Ukraine and Christians in the Ukraine the opportunity to be witnesses for Christ, even in the midst of intense suffering and pain, to show their courage in the face of suffering, to show sympathy for those that are suffering, and to be a witness of God to those that are suffering and to bring hope and light into a dark world. There's the argument from good. I'm almost finished. You know, folks, there's a great mystery about evil and suffering. Why did God let that happen? But there's an even greater mystery and why is there good? Why is there good? In a universe of entropy and decay, where we know that all the energy will dissipate someday, the whole universe is winding down and it is corrupt, why is there any good at all? Our conscience, when we are outraged about evil, gives intuitive evidence that God must exist because we crave for the good. The possibility of evil suggests that there is an even greater potential to do good. You know, how often do we stop and we just thank God because of his goodness, because of his love, because of his mercy and his grace? Let me be candid with you just a minute. You know, when, when a believer is talking with me about how God is responsible for evil and suffering and how could he let all the bad things happen, why do I go into a different gear? Do you know what I'm saying? We come here on Sunday morning, and we do what? We praise God from whom what? All blessings flow. We talk about how great and wonderful and good he is and how faithful he is. We praise him and we honor him. We talk about his goodness. And then we leave here, and if somebody challenges us about how all of the evil in the world is God's fault and responsibility, we're put on the defensive. We want to explain everything to them. And folks, let me tell you, you cannot explain evil and suffering. As much as I've done over the last 35 minutes, I have not been able to explain it in an adequate way. No. That is not really our responsibility to do, is to get God off the hook. He claims responsibility for everything that happens in this universe. He didn't cause it, but he is the author of good. Why don't we then share with them how good God is, how marvelous he is, how blessing he is? The argument of good, in my opinion, every day outtrumps the argument of evil and suffering. And then next to last... You know, suffering offers an opportunity for spiritual growth. Now, let me say a word of caveat here, a word of warning. This does not mean that it is an excuse to say that evil is necessary and it has to be accepted. It's not an excuse for, for not opposing moral evil. It is not an excuse for helping to re, not helping to relieve suffering. No, we must take a stand against evil. We must help people that are suffering. We must do things such as what, what uh, Zechariah and some of you did yesterday when you went and you helped with the homeless. 
No, we must, we must fight against evil and suffering. But you know, it does offer opportunity for spiritual growth. To exhibit courage and patience. Courage, I think, is the voluntary stepping forward in the face of, of opposition. And that's a good thing. You choose when something confronts you courageously to confront it, and you voluntarily do so. There are folks in the Ukraine, there are young men in the Ukraine that are volunteering to take up arms courageously. But patience is different. Patience is when then you are faced with suffering. Patience is when something you get, you get a, a, a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Patience is when you've got intense pain and you have no choice to confront it. And yet patiently you overcome that suffering with the power of the Lord and this helps you then to become perfect in his sight. Consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, it is that kind of suffering and sometimes unavoidable confrontation with evil where God enables us patiently with his strength to work through it. Last of all, you know, what is the worst evil of all? And that is death. Does death have any good purpose? I would suggest that it does. You know, Beverly and I have been married 50, almost 50 years this, this summer. And when we got married, like some of you that have been married in the past year, you look ahead and you think you've got a lifetime ahead of you. You've got endless days, you know. Let me tell you, when you've been married 50 years, you begin to count each day more preciously than the day before. I do not have as many years left on the face of this earth as some of you young people do. Beverly and I do not have as much time in our marriage left as some of you do. What does that do? It helps you to value each day as precious. When you face your mortality, when you face coming death, you see what it does is it makes each day more significant and more precious. If humans never died, I don't know how many would be on the face of this globe today, but I'm going to estimate about 20 billion people. As many people have lived as are alive now and then add some. Folks, we would be in an overpopulated world. We would not be able to sustain ourselves unless we began to colonize Mars and Venus, which we can't do. You see, there, there are limits to what the globe can support. Hmm. If we don't rotate off the face of this globe, this generation, it makes no room for the younger generation then to come along and to exercise its gifts and its strengths. Death has some benefits. It limits the suffering we go through and it brings it to an end and it reminds us that evil and suffering today are temporary. And for the Christian, death may be the last enemy, but in a way death is a friend because it is the portal into eternal life. You know, even with Satan, even with his introducing sin through Adam and Eve into this world and suffering, and even with all of the evil and suffering and destruction that has resulted, God has provided a remedy. 
And that is, even death will be defeated. We have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. Because why? Because why, friends? Because he suffered excruciating, unimaginable pain. And he died on a cross. The greatest evil perpetrated on anyone in all of history has produced the greatest result because the Father resurrected him and he is at the Father's right hand today. And he offers the opportunity of eternal life for those who believe in him. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The answer to evil and suffering, I think, can be reduced to this. It's the argument of good. God is good and he loves you. And he wants to give you eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. Through all the suffering and all the pain, he offers you eternal life if you will die to self and accept him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.